Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I have the passage for you there on the insert as well. At Redeemer, we don't bind ourselves to the church calendar, but we recognize it has some value, especially devotional value to at different times of the year to focus on different events in Jesus' life, tells the gospel story. Last week, you might have noticed in the front of the bulletin, it said Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany has to do with the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles, and that was typified when the wise men went to see Jesus. Uh, This is the week after Epiphany, and as providence would have it, we're going through Matthew uh, throughout for the next year or so, and we've come to this episode uh, that falls within that realm of God revealing himself beyond just the Jews, but to the nations. And that's what epiphany means, this revelation of the gospel beyond just a select group of people or a nation so that everybody, all tribes and tongues, hear the message of the gospel and God calls people to himself from everywhere. And the magi or the wise men represent this. They're the first ones. It's an amazing thing when you think of Matthew, a Jewish writer, who writes primarily to a Jewish audience at the onset. We know this because of the way he writes, uh, he assumes so many things that a non-Jewish audience wouldn't know. We have to do some work to understand it. But he's writing to really jar them into realizing that this Jesus is the Messiah. And it would be shocking to first read this gospel account and have the first people respond not be Jewish people, but stargazing pagans no less. And that's right out of the gate in this beautiful gospel. The four gospels fill in the various details that give us a fuller picture of the early days of Christ's life. And here we have Matthew giving us the episode of the wise men visiting. Here now as I read God's holy word, yes, this is a passage familiar to us, but may God give us a fresh look at this. This is his, his, his inspired and inerrant word, the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, we are certainly inspired by the zeal of these magi to seek out the whereabouts of the Messiah. It is humbling to see people with apparently so little information about Jesus, yet so eager to risk life and limb to see him and to be in his presence, if only for a little while. As we come to your word, please give us a sense that we are coming to see Jesus. Give us an eagerness, a zeal. Help us to understand this passage, even if it may be familiar to us. Help us to see something fresh and gather some practical application to our lives. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The people in this story should have been very eager to meet Christ, uh, but they were at the very least indifferent or apathetic. Now, we can understand why Herod felt this way. Herod saw the announcement of a king, a king of the Jews, as direct competition to himself. So asking the appointed king in power uh, where we might go to see the king of the Jews would have made this paranoid man even more anxious and worried. But what about the scribes? What about the priests? Shouldn't they have been excited to see some connection between prophecies and the fulfillment thereof? But they were indifferent at this point. Probably straight-up unbelievers. Yes, there was one fitting the description of the ancient texts. They knew their prophecies. But they were comfortable with their station in life. They liked where they were socially. They liked where they were politically. They liked their cultural power and influence. They didn't want anything to disrupt it, even something like this. They had long quit believing that something like that would happen. Apathy, indifference, even acrimony towards the notion of the Messiah coming is prevalent. Straight unbelief here. Matthew wants us to see the contrast. The contrast between the Jewish leaders who should have been looking for Christ and the wise men who had no reason whatsoever to be this zealous other than God moving them. The Magi, or the Magi as they're called. They were part of a priestly caste of astrologers from old Babylon or Persia. Hundreds, if not thousands, of these counselors and astrologers were all over the known world at that time. Yet here they are seeking the Savior, the one called the King of the Jews. Something unique about this announcement struck them. All who believe on Christ will be saved. This is the teaching of the Messiah to come, about the Messiah to come. What a glorious gospel. And the Magi recognized this glory even before the people from whom the Messiah would come. J.C. Ryle said it well of the Magi. Men may be born in dark places on the earth, like these Magi, and yet, like them, be given the wisdom that leads them to salvation. I think we can learn much from this familiar episode. But let the eager, active, joyful faith of the Magi refresh your own faith today. First, I want you to look at the passage with with me and we will see the eagerness of their faith that makes them get up and go a long ways away, uh, risking life and limb to make this journey. To be compelled to take such an arduous journey with relatively small amount of information, that's inspirational and that's based on a faith, a belief, a trust they have that there's something to see here of significance. In verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, some time, we know. 
in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Didn't take much. We see what it was that spawned their visit, but they have an eager faith to come see the Christ. Let's answer a few questions, though, as we begin. Who was Herod? Who were the Magi, or the wise men? And what is it that prompted them to travel so far to search for Christ? Well, first, the Herods. The Herods were a family of kings who were appointed by the Romans to oversee Judea, the Jewish state there, and Jerusalem being the capital. They weren't even from the line of David. They were even half-Jewish. There are five Herods in the New Testament. One referred to, Herod the Great, he's the one who built the temple in all these other construction projects that serve as the backdrop for the New Testament. He's not alive at the time of Christ, but he's referred to. His son, Herod Archelaus, is this Herod, the one we're looking at here. And he was the longest reigning Herod in the most brutal and paranoid of all of them. He ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., a 30-something year reign, which is long in this time. Now, you'll notice I said he died in 4 B.C. Jesus wasn't born in zero. He was born probably 6 or 7 B.C. The dating was wrong from the Middle Ages. And this Herod is the one who's referred to in, the first, in this first episode in Matthew. Then after him came Antipas. He's the one who executed John the Baptist and later tried Jesus. Then there are two Herods during the times of the apostles, Agrippa and then Agrippa II, who Paul stood before. So five Herods, this is the second one, and he's the most brutal of them all. So brutal and so paranoid that he killed two of his own sons thinking they were trying to take his throne. Several times he would put down insurrections by full massacres. This is how he worked. This is how he ruled. What a contrast Michael Green notices between Herod's kingship and the kingship of Jesus. One, Herod is inaugurated by Rome, an alien power based on aggression and cruelty. The other, originating from love, appointed by God, shown in vulnerability and entering into its kingdom through the cross. Now, it should be noted when it comes to reading the stars and astrology, we think of that as something kind of new age-ish and when the newspaper used to be around, you check your astrological signs and such and there are people who do this, but we mostly think it's nuts. In these days, in the Greco-Roman world and for centuries before, reading the stars was a major activity. It was an occupation. It was a lucrative occupation. And if you think of all the distractions we have now, we don't look up a whole lot. We look down at our phone most of the time. If you don't have all that stuff, and it's really dark at night, you stare at the sky a lot, and you'll notice all sorts of activity. I've only been in places a couple times in my life that had no ambient light to distract at all. And you would be amazed at how many more stars you can see than just how many you can see out in the suburbs. And there would be people who spend their lives trying to read the signs. In fact, when comets would show in the sky or shooting stars, there were predictions made about rulers who were rising up as a result, attached to that comet symbolism somehow, and rulers crashing down. 
In fact, Alexander the Great is said to have been predicted by a comet that went by. So people in those days were very familiar with listening to astrological reasons for various things. That's an important backdrop as to why they heard what the Magi were saying. Now, who were these wise men or these Magi? I said earlier, Magi is the Greek name for them. It literally means mighty ones. So it shows you how high of an opinion people in antiquity had for those who read the stars. It was a term for a caste or order of priests from old Persia or Babylon. They would have been where modern Iraq and Iran are. That's where they would have principally been located. But they would permeate the region and they would be advisors to kings and rulers and such. Remember in Daniel, there were several of those who reported to him or advised to him. Now, how many of them came of the wise men? Because of the three gifts, tradition often will depict three. But in fact, it's very likely, it's very probable there was an entourage or a small group of these magi who traveled this distance just for safety's sake to come that far. It would be like a caravan of people. In fact, there are so many of them that people in Jerusalem took notice when they arose, when they came. You know, the, the hymn that uh, is sung during this time of the year, or at least during their Advent season, it's not in our hymnal, and I wonder why sometimes. Well, you know, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse so far. Well, that's because there weren't three. They didn't come from the Orient, and they weren't kings. But otherwise, it's a good hymn. I thought maybe instead of we three kings of Orient and how about we wise men of eastern lands bearing gifts we tra- That doesn't work. So we're stuck with the old one. Just make sure you make an explanation when you sing it, of course. How did they decide to make the trip? Well, in verse 1, they came from the east saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they're making a very clear statement. Where would they get that statement? Now, in Persia and Babylon, there still would be remaining Jewish influence from the exilic periods. They would even have knowledge of the Old Testament text. So there would be some knowledge about a Jewish king to be born that they may have heard. And of course, these magi would be very interested in all the traditions in all the myths and such that they would hear from the various people groups. So they had in their minds this episode. But then it says, verse 2, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the king in worship, you see how they connect there. But there's a star, a significant star that they're attaching to the king of the Jews' birth. So they were acting on a faith that they had concerning this declaration about a star and the king. What an eager faith this is. It's not much to go on. We have way more to go on than they have to go on. And yet they make this trip of several months. That's how long it would have taken from either of these places. The prophecy that was probably most pronounced in lands outside of Israel comes from the books of Moses. In the book of Numbers, it says from Balaam's prophecy, it's a foreign prophecy too, which gives reason for why the Magi might think it applies beyond the Jewish people, why they might be interested. Balaam prophesies, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's a king. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. An allusion to the crushing the head of the serpent, the salvation that this king would bring. There's enough information there tied with an astrological event that was noteworthy that spurs on these magi to a very eager faith that sets to action. Boy, with so little, and yet they're looking. Are we that anticipatory about what God promises? I hope that we look forward to the return of Christ and don't think it just will never happen or it's not going to happen or it won't be in my life. I don't know, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we should be anticipatory. We should look forward to his coming again because he says he will come again. And we have much more to go on than the Magi had about the first coming. But just about Jesus in general, looking for salvation, they knew they needed something more than the stars were giving them, I'm guessing. Uh, they knew there was something in this prophecy that was unique. This is the promise of a Savior for all the world. Anybody who might believe on him may come to him, may worship him. They may be saved. If you found Christ like this, look at the Magi, how God stirs their faith. Now, I realize it's God stirring their faith. Is he stirring your faith in this way? Maybe you're an old believer and it's refreshing you again to see how wonderful this gospel is. Well, there's more to it. Their eager faith turns to an active search. Look at verse 2 to 9, and you see how they start to inquire once they get to Jerusalem. Now, the star is there. They know it's a Jewish prophecy, so they go to the capital of Israel. Makes sense. And certainly, people there are going to be a buzz. It's been some months since Jesus was born, and they're going to know right where he is so we can go see him. I mean, certainly all the people there will be recognizing this. So they come from the east, and it says they were saying, which means they were perpetually asking this question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they just start asking the question when they get to town. And they say, the reason why we're asking is we saw, verse 2 again, his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They're saying it as though somebody here has got to know what we're talking about. How is it that there's no huge fanfare over this. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem because Herod was troubled, not because they were stirred about the truth of this prophecy. It was about 20 years ago when my father and I made a trip to Italy to kind of go through a roots trip to Sicily to see where he was born or where his family comes from trying to find our actual name because my name is messed up as a result of it getting changed when they came over to the United States. So we thought we could find some records that would get the actual name figured out by going to these little towns in Sicily. Well, part of our trip was then to then go across the Straits of Messina in a boat and then up through Italy to Florence where we were going to visit the Florence American Cemetery. And this is because my uncle Christopher died in Italy fighting for America in World War II on the battle, the assault on Anzio, which took many months. Um, he was drafted um, around Christmas time in 1943. In the 1944, uh, he was basic training. Um, he got over to join in this assault on July 12th, and then July 14th, he was dead in Pisa on the way to Florence. 
and he's buried there, and no one in my family ever got a chance to go see the gravesite. Not any of my family members ever traveled there till my father and I did 60 years later. And the state drove us up there and showed us, told us the story of all how these men died. 3,500 different soldiers there. Now, what's interesting is before we left for the cemetery, I asked the person at the hotel, how do we get to the Florence American Cemetery? He had no idea what I was talking about. I asked another person in the lobby. They had no idea. I stepped outside. I asked the person who was driving the cab, hey, we want to go to the Florence American Cemetery. They had no idea. Where It's 2004, so it's not as easy to plug in your phone where to go. The people in Florence didn't even know the people that had liberated them and allowed for them to have the life they were living. Not a one of them knew about it. I couldn't find anybody that knew. This is, must be the response of the wise men when they get to Jerusalem. And nobody knows. We've traveled this whole distance on the basis of the star Messiah. And, why, and it takes for them to get shuffled off to Herod and interrogated to find where exactly he might be. It's J.C. Ryle who asks some really good questions, or gives us some questions we should ask based on how fervent and zealous and active the search of the Magi are. Ryle says, where is our self-denial to go find Jesus? What pains do we take for our souls? What do we think is worth going after to find out? The people were just living common life. I guess they didn't need the Savior. That's how they may have felt. What diligence do we show about following or seeking Christ? What does our religion, our belief, our faith cost us? They believed, though they had never seen him yet. Other than the star, they saw no miracles in order to be convinced. They simply believed and followed. They get to the Jewish capital, ask their questions. Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. And boy, that gained the attention of the king. When Herod heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem, and they are brought in for interrogation, verse 3. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he knew this was important. Herod knew this was big news, but had been keeping it on the download. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He wants to know from the scribes and the priests where it is that the Messiah is supposed to be born. They say it seems like without delay. Maybe there was a delay. They go to the prophecy from the book of Micah. In Bethlehem of Judea, they say, or so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What a prophecy. What a king this is going to be. It's certainly not Herod. No, I want you to notice something here as the word of God is quoted by the scribes and the priests. All the searching for salvation or a savior in the world that we might do will come up short until God intercedes with a necessary revelation about who it is. Every person knows something's not right and they need something that they can't find on their own. They search and they search and they search. It's even true for the Magi. But even the revelation of the star that was supernatural That cannot in itself take the Magi all the way to Christ. They need the revelation of Scripture to complete their journey to Jesus. People can sense a need for salvation. That's not so hard. Not many will go the lengths of the Magi, though, to search that sense. But you can't ever find the answer without God revealing it. He must reveal his will to us. That is the great 
blessing of being in a place to receive God's revelation, his word, that tells us what's true. The world could tell us only so much. We need his particular help in knowing the way. One of my favorite features of our confessional standards is in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession because it captures this phenomena that's taught by the Bible. In the first chapter, it says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, all God's dealings in, in the world that we see operating around us, they do manifest goodness, wisdom, and power that are of God. So they leave us without excuse. We can, every human being has to acknowledge we didn't come from nothing. or We came from nothing, but we came created by someone who was always there in that sense. Therefore, we have to acknowledge that there's a God and be inexcusable, yet the things themselves are not sufficient to give us enough knowledge that would give us salvation. We need more than this. So the confession says, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and divers manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for a better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for a more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, corruption of the world, of the devil, keep us protected, they would commit the same to writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures most necessary. Now back to Herod and his paranoia. Verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men then secretly after hearing this and found out from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. That was based on the knowledge he had just received from the scribes and the priests. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He already had murderous intent, but he wanted to confirm it. And these, these men were pretty innocuous. It would be easy for them to go in undetected. Just come back and let me know. Then he'd have the information he'd need. It says in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. They had the information they needed. He was in Bethlehem. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Much has been made of the star. We don't know for sure. There is an interesting um, crossing of Jupiter and another planet in 7 BC that emitted a great light. We have this from records. Most likely, this is just a supernatural brightening of an existing star that God uses for a time to lead the Magi where they were going. The scribes and the Pharisees, so much privileged religious information, yet they were hardened in their hearts. They even knew the Bible prophesied Messiah's coming, yet they weren't searching. And here are the Magi, with such little information, but knowing they needed salvation, so eager to see the Messiah. It's not the religious people who worship Christ. First, it was the Magi. Knowledge of Scripture in their head, but no grace in their hearts. Too much knowledge. You know, always be willing to do self-checks. We should as a church. Are we too filled in our heads that we've lost some passion? Check your passion for Christ. If you sing Amazing Grace, now I know we Presbyterians are tight on the outside, but I hope we're not tight on the inside. Outside expressions can be given to overexpression. They can be abused, but a pendulum the other side could be poor too. But when you sing Amazing Grace, you think of the lines therein. That was a bit of a, a litmus for you. 
and that doesn't stir you, then maybe there's a, a lack of passion that maybe your, your head's getting too big and heavy and it's crushing your heart a little bit. They need to be in balance. It's a good warning to us when we see people with all the knowledge in the world right under their nose, the Messiah was there and they did not see him. It took pagan stargazers to bring him to light. And this brings us to their response once they find Jesus. Verse 10 to the end of the chapter, end of the verses, 10, verse 12. And they demonstrate this joyful, joyful worship. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm sure they're expressing their amazement at how this has all come together. Going into the house, notice they're in a house now, so they're not in the manger. I know, again, the nativity set says, you know, it just makes it easy to put them all together, but this would have been maybe months later, for sure. Could be that Jesus is a toddler at this point, standing there with his mother in a house in Bethlehem. When they see the child with Mary's mother, they fall down and worship him. Oh, to walk these kinds of these steps of faith that we're seeing here. Uh, all they needed to do is see this fulfillment and they fall down in worship. Shouldn't be ashamed to fall down and worship our Christ. And we have way more evidence than the Magi, that's for sure. Going into the house, they saw the child with his mother. Um, again, I, I want to note this because the word there, the child with Mary's mother, is the Greek word paidon, which is young child. Whereas back at Luke 2, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth. That's Brephos, baby. So now we have this young child, and they fell down and worship before the child king. They showed their worship from a disposition of their heart manifesting itself into the position of their bodies as they laid there humbly and helplessly giving him homage, exceeding rejoicing and great joy. If Israel won't worship, the Gentiles will. It's an amazing display. It's not Herod who's worshiping. The scribes or the priests, they're not worshiping. The people of Jerusalem not worshiping. But these stargazers, these magi, yes. Because they understood the fullness of what the angels announced to the shepherd. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. And they were part of all the peoples. And they come, and it says that they lay down before King Jesus. They worship by the devotion of their hearts. This led to the posture of their bodies, and it also prompted them to give of their treasures. In verse 11, Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't think it's strictly speaking accurate to say, based on how much we give to the Lord, um, I won't say that's a one-for-one one how much you love him. But if you do love him, if you are devoted to him, it will manifest itself in how you give of your gifts in the many ways that you can do this. In this case, they travel a long way with some very expensive items. Another reason why they didn't travel with just three of them. With this kind of riches, they would have needed a caravan. First is gold. Gold is something reserved for royalty. The kings would hoard gold because it was so rare. It wasn't often that regular people would have gold. And here these magi have gold to give to one they see as a king. Jesus was royalty. Frankincense is 
a little unusual to us, but notice the incense part, frankincense. Incense was used in the temple in religious rites and rituals. It symbolized the going up of a sweet aroma to God in prayer. It was also used in a sacrificial system uh, to mask even the odors that would be part of the sacrifices to cover over that so you would only smell the, the good smell of the incense. Jesus himself presents an aroma that is beautiful unto God, his righteousness, that will be a gift to his people. Myrrh, even more unusual, to give to this poor woman and her husband and her child. Myrrh was a costly spice that was used for many things, but especially in the embalming process for the rich. It wasn't for the common person. Many scholars see this gift that they gave as a bit of a forecast of things to come for the Messiah King. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This familiar episode leaves us with some questions that are always worth asking anew. Have you found Jesus? If so, what's your response to finding him? If you have found him, you'll want to worship him. And your heart will be bent towards him and you'll want to offer your gifts to him. You know, I've been a believer for some time now and whenever I see a new believer or younger believer, you know, really passionate for Christ and talking to other people about Jesus every chance they get, I get a healthy conviction for my own coldness and my heart gotten rusty a bit and not appreciating salvation from my sins. A little too comfortable with being accepted as long as I don't talk too much about Jesus. And then I see a new believer and I'm convicted in a, in a, in a great way. I hope that's true for you. Whenever I see religious people, on the other hand, being part of that group, when we miss obvious spiritual lessons that would require some spiritual sensitivity, I cringe a bit and do a self-check about why have I, have I gotten so cold that I can't see God at work in this situation? I'm not making a scriptural declaration about how God did this or did that, but when things happen that you just know the Lord's got his hand upon, because um, he shows it. Yes, he's always active, but there are certain things he'll do to really jar us all into depending on him more. If I become numb to that kind of movement of God's spirit, whenever I see people who are doctrinally knowledgeable, uh, cold like that, I pause to consider, am I being a bad example about this? These are good questions for us all. As parents towards our children, as we teach them how to look for God moving in this world. The coming of Messiah should have been the thing that the Jews were always waiting for. But they had grown so comfortable in this world, their place on earth, their acceptance. It wasn't great with the Romans, but they could live this way. And there were some things looking up for them. They looked forward to some political revolution that might occur. They didn't want to mess that up with something religious. They couldn't see the kingdom of heaven when it had arrived. You know, we have the blessing of several new members at Redeemer. Some of these new members are also new believers, relatively young believers even. And they come with an infectious zeal for knowing Christ. Catch hold of that, brothers and sisters, all us old brothers and sisters. Appreciate that. Remember when you had that joy of salvation. And see it rekindled in your life now through that. And may God bring more people like that to us. Has your passion for Christ grown cold? Has your zeal for knowing Christ gone stale? 
Have you become too complacent with comfort? You know, I was thinking this morning, it is pretty cold out. Even I'll say that. But you know, and this is, please don't take this as some shaming thing. It's not. It was something I thought of. But I always remember these stories of people like Woody would tell these stories. And I've talked to Pavel Horev about this because he's a friend of mine now. And it's without, they don't even say it in any way. We just are amazed. But during communism, when they were kicked out of their buildings and they had to still gather for worship, they thought nothing. I mean, maybe they thought they had to think something of it. Maybe I'm overdoing it. But they go to the forest in the winter and they would have times of worship. I just love that passion. The passion would make us want to meet with Christ and his people no matter what. That passion, may we never lose that. May we always feel that that is so important that we would be able to meet Jesus. And the way we meet Jesus today is by his word and through his people. That's how we have that particular interaction with Christ until we see him in glory. Let the faith of these magi who are so eager to search out Christ and then to joyfully worship him. May this refresh our own devotion to Christ today. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, the eagerness of the magi to see Christ is truly a reminder and a refresher concerning how magnificent that our Lord Jesus is. Lord, to the degree that we may be lacking in awe about Christ and his love for us, please use this exposure to your word as a wake-up call and a stimulant to our faith in our passion for you. Having met Jesus again, may we also rejoice exceedingly with great joy on this day, and I pray this through Christ. Amen.